James 4, and this morning we're just going to be looking at verses uh, 13 through verse 16. So listen now to uh, the reading of God's Word, beginning at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Seek the Lord's blessing in this, His Word. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do rejoice and give thanks for the great truth of your word. We know that it is your only infallible rule for faith and life. And we pray that as we come to this passage, you would reveal to us what is here as to what we ought to believe concerning you and uh, what duty you require of us. And uh, we just ask, Father, that your spirit would be present as your word goes forth and that it truly would bring about a great uh, abundant fruit for your eternal glory. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our chief end in life, the purpose, the very purpose for which we've been created, is that we might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But unfortunately, many Christians get the wrong idea about this. And they believe that glorifying God and enjoying Him is something that you only do on Sunday. And then it's, even then, it's not the whole day devoted to Him, but just for an hour or two when you go to church. And so people go to church, they, they put their time in, and they check off that box of, of what they've done for the Lord. And then the rest of the week... They go about living their lives without much thought of the Lord. See, it's so easy to compartmentalize our lives that, yes, we keep God and our faith in a very important place, but it's in a place that's totally unconnected to the other areas of our lives. Well, this, of course, is the very issue that James has been addressing in his letter, and especially here in in chapter 4. See, he's already uh, called his readers to submit to God and humble themselves before the Lord. Because it was clear that they weren't doing this consistently. Yes, they were professing to be Christians. And they attended the, the gathering together of the saints on the Lord's Day. But they weren't living out their daily lives, their daily everyday lives, submitted to God, submitted to His will, or submitted to the call that He has given to His people to be holy, even as He is holy. Well, in this passage before us this morning, James uh, illustrates this inconsistency by pointing out yet another area of life that... They were not submitting to God and thus exemplifying that they were following the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom from God. Well, the problem area that James zeroes in on is 
is one that's certainly common to life. In fact, it's very likely something that we all do to some extent each and every day, and that is making plans. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Now as we read this, we might wonder, well, what's the big deal? Right? What does God have to do with my to-do list? What does He have to do with my vacation plans? Or what does God have to do with the career goals that I might set for myself? Or whatever else it might be. Plans for that I make for the future. What does God have to do with these things? Well, everything. You see, if our lives are to be, uh, uh, to be fully submitted to the Lord... If our whole uh, heart, soul, mind, and body and strength is to be devoted to loving Him, well then absolutely yes, He's concerned about even these seemingly minor things. Consider how the Apostle Paul uh, charges in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do for the glory of God. Well, if we're to eat and to drink to the glory of God, well then certainly our plans, what we want to do and what we hope to accomplish, should also be submitted to that goal and purpose as well. But as James observes here, this wasn't happening. He uses the merchants as an example. And James wants his readers to think carefully about the plans that they make and how they make them. It appears, see, that they were making these plans without any thought to God. In other words, though they profess Christ, they're living their lives in such a way that doesn't actually acknowledge Him. And we often refer to this as what's called practical atheism. Right, practical atheism. It's not. It's not a reason philosophical denial of God. When we often that we often think about uh, in relation to atheism, but it's living your life without reference to God, or at the very least, it's living your life with very little reference to God. For example, just thinking about Him only on Sundays, or when you're just doing something that's religious. See, this kind of lifestyle denies God because there's little little evidence of Him in it. That is, it, it would be hard to tell the difference between your life and the life of someone else in the world who doesn't know God. It's a lifestyle that boasts... I'm the one in control of my life. I am the one who is the master of my own destiny. And as James charges his readers concerning this, I want you to note three assumptions that they're making with their plan making as they make these kinds of plans without reference to God. First, they assume that they're in control of any unforeseen circumstances that may occur as they plan to go wherever they want, whenever they want. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city. 
There's no doubt, there's no concern, there's no caution, there's just a, a, a confident, we will do this. But we have to ask, do they have control over the weather? Do they have the control over the conditions of the roads or their chariots or the ships that they might take? Do they control the bandits who may be hiding in the hills? Or can they even prevent every accident so that there will be no delay? No thought is given to any of these things. Only, this is what we're going to do and we're going to do it. Secondly, they, and so they, they assume that they have power over these unforeseen things. Secondly, they assume that they're in control of their own lives. Right? They say, we will spend a year there. Now, again, what if they get sick? Or what if someone in their family back home gets sick or, or dies and, and they have to leave? Can they control that to keep those things from happening? And what if they go to this such and such city, but they're not accepted in that new city? Maybe people will look upon them with suspicion. Maybe they'll end up being persecuted, maybe even thrown out, maybe even imprisoned, or even killed in a riotous mob. As we know, many Christians experience those very things. Do they have control over those kinds of things? And so they're thinking they have control over their own lives. Thirdly, they assume that they have control over others and the ultimate outcome of their endeavor. They say, we will buy and sell and make a profit. Have they thought about this? Do they have control over those things? What if no one wants to buy their goods? What if there are other who are already there and well-established and good reputation, who are selling the same wares or engaging in the same kinds of business? What if all their merchandise is stolen or lost in a fire? How do they know they're going to actually make a profit? Do they have such a control over people that they'll force them to buy their goods? seems kind of ludicrous for them to make such bold assumptions. But again, this is the practical atheism. They're making these plans without reference to God. You see, because God isn't in control from their perspective. Because they're their their own Lord and Master. They're the the ones who are in control. Again, we expect such a lifestyle and a perspective from those in the world. Right, those who aren't only practical atheists, but also those who purposely deny God and His existence. But remember, James isn't writing his letter to unbelievers. He's writing to Christians. They're the ones making these plans and assumptions. They're the ones who aren't living a life that's consistent with their profession of faith. And as we've seen before, how one lives their lives ultimately is going to reveal the condition of their heart. So that the problem isn't just practical atheism, but it's a heart filled with pride and arrogance that puffs itself up even before God. And so pride in the idolatry of self is the deeper root of the problem. 
In fact, when making plans and thinking about the future, pride often works its way out in two very different ways. The first is what we see here, right? being boastful in how you make your plans, assuming that you have control over all sorts of variables and circumstances, thinking uh, nothing can stop me from fulfilling my plans. And we assume that our plans are the best plans, and that they're the only plans that need to be considered. And again, it's all about pursuing what I want, when I want it, and in the manner that I want to do it. Pride is the pursuit of the glory of self rather than the glory of God in all, in all things. Such boastful pride is ugly enough when it's displayed in the world, but how much more so when it rears its head in the church? And sadly, it happens all too often. Maybe there's a, a controlling pastor or elder who uh, abuses their authority and declares, look, it's my way or the highway. Or maybe it's the stubborn, influential member that uh, resists any sort of change at every turn. Both, in both situations, they're both puffed with pride as they exert their control in order to get their own way. And so there's this kind of boastful uh, way of expressing pr- uh, pr- pr- this boastful uh, way pride comes out in making plans. But there's a second way that pride works its way into our plan making. And that's actually when we're filled with anxious worry about the future. Now we may not think of this as pride, but it is. Boasting is prideful, we know, because you think you're in control of everything. But anxiety and worry is also prideful, Because although you acknowledge you don't have control over anything, you desperately want it. You want that control. And you want to be able to get it so that your plans will be made and accomplished. And so the three assumptions earlier about control over circumstances like life and others, these come into play as well. Except now there's panic, dismay, and anxiety. And you may even refuse to make plans altogether because, again, you have no control over anything. And again, it's prideful, though, you see, because you're still at the center You're at the center. Even though you may not be in control, you want to be in control, but you're not. And you're panicked. Because you want everything to work out perfectly to the best suit your needs and purposes. But nothing and no one, of course, is cooperating. See, they aren't bowing to your desires. And it's causing you distress. And so yes, anxiety and worry are rooted in pride and the idolatry of self. So boasting and anxious worry are really two sides of the same coin of pride. 
both become problematic when it comes to making plans, especially for the one who professes faith in Christ. Practical atheism and pride of both kinds then are real problems. Well, having identified the problem, James now reveals the reality of the situation. And the reality is that mankind is actually weak and not as in control as he thinks he is. Verse 14, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life, it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Here we're reminded of Jesus' teaching of the parable of the foolish farmer in Luke chapter 12. Remember there, the farmer boasted in in the coming harvest, and he was so confident in uh, what the land was going to produce that he uh, foolishly tore down his his present barns in order to big bigger ones. And he was making all these great plans for his retirement since he figured, well, I'm going to have these big barns filled up. And I'm going to be able to retire because I'm going to have room to store the entire harvest. You see, but God had other plans. Jesus reveals in Luke 12, verse 20, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? If the man had these big plans... And he thought he was going to be set for the rest of his life. But you see, he had no control over his life. And the Lord brought it to an end sooner than he thought. And he didn't even get to enjoy that bountiful harvest. In Proverbs 27 verse 1, we learn a similar truth. Do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring forth. And it's foolish to make boastful plans. Because there are so many things that could happen. Things that are unexpected and outside our control. Even involving your own health and life. And think about it. Already this morning, how many unexpected and unplanned things have happened even today? Or yesterday. And then you are always readjusting our plans according to these things. Because we don't know what will happen. And even if we did, we would still have no way to control all the possible variables. You see, when it comes down to it, we are but weak creatures. And as James points out further, not only are we weak, but in the grand scheme of things, We're just a vapor, a mist, right? A vapor, a mist that appears in the early morning hour and it can even uh, seem quite thick and full of substance, but as the sun rises and burns brightly, that vapor just quickly dissipates and vanishes away. It was really just nothing. Again, there are many things we have no control over, but one of the most most significant of them is time. Right? Our life is but a drop in the bucket when compared to the thousands of years of human history. And it's even quite smaller and insignificant in the whole entire spectrum of eternity. 
And Job sums it up well in Job 14. He says, man who is born of woman is a few days. And those few days are full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And it's here today and gone tomorrow. Our lives are brief and insignificant, and yet we dare make such bold plans, exalting ourselves as if we were someone to be feared, as if we were someone mighty and all-powerful. But clearly the reality is, we aren't. But there's a second reality. And one that James doesn't explicitly state, but certainly he acknowledges it. Is a yes, man is weak and not in control. But this doesn't mean that chaos and blind fate then are in control of all things. And sometimes we, we look around and we are tempted to think this. Right? We see uh, violence, we see destruction, we see evil all around us. And it may seem like chaos reigns over everything. But this is simply the influence and the effect of sin in the world. We know that the world was created with order, and yet sin brought chaos and rebellion. But even though there's sin in the world, the world still remains under the sovereign hand of the Creator. And this is the second reality that needs to be acknowledged God is in control, He alone is sovereign. He alone is almighty and all-powerful. He who created all things by the word of His power in the space of six days continues to sustain all things and rules over all things to bring about His perfect plan and purpose. This truth we know from the testimony of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9-11, through 11, we read this. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. God alone is the one who makes plans that actually come about. He alone makes plans that can't be thwarted, can't be changed or redirected. He establishes His purpose from the beginning, even before the foundations of the earth. Even declaring the end all the way back from the beginning. He has declared and appointed the end of all things. He reigns and rules over all things and guides and directs all things so that His plan is established and His purpose is met. The Lord is sovereign over the powerful forces of nature. He's sovereign over sickness and disease, over accidents and those things that appear to us to just be random events. And yet God is sovereign over those things. He's even sovereign over the sinful actions of men. You see that example with Joseph and his brothers. right? They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He used the sin of Joseph's brothers to save them all alive. 
And that was His plan. He will use those actions to bring about His ultimate goal and purpose so that nothing can thwart the plan and the purpose of God. His plan will never be ruined. God never has to resort to plan B because plan A always works out. But on the other hand, even our best made plans are nothing more than hopeful desires. But because God is sovereign, we know that His plan will come about. And so this is a reality that we need to acknowledge. We need to acknowledge that we are weak and have no control, but that God, our God, the living God, the true God, is sovereign over all things. And so the solution to the problem, the solution to the problem of practical atheism and pride is that we must then acknowledge these two realities, our own weakness and limitations and the almighty sovereignty of God. And whether it's combating boastful pride or anxious, worrisome pride, if we would humble ourselves before the Lord and submit our wills to His will, we'll be enabled by His grace to move forward. James tells us how we do this in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And so instead of making boastful plans and and pompously assuming that we have control over things which we have no control over, well, we ought to acknowledge the Lord, His sovereignty, and His will and purpose. The Apostle Paul acknowledges this truth on several occasions. For example... Uh, After spending a time in in the city of Ephesus, he was urged to stay longer, but he he humbled himself before the Sovereign Lord and responds in Acts 18, but I will return again to you, God willing. You see, by acknowledging the Lord and His plans, Paul was acknowledging that God is in control. And certainly Paul was going to make uh, every, every effort to return. But he would only do so if the Lord gave opportunity and made it possible. By saying, if the Lord wills, then, you see, we're acknowledging several important truths, as Paul does here, and as James uh, points out to us as well. First, we acknowledge that we truly are weak and that we're fully dependent upon the Lord for everything. Paul says in Acts 17 in in Athens, for in Him that is in God we live and move and have our being. As our whole life is in God's gracious almighty hands. We can't do anything outside of His plan and purpose. And so we need to acknowledge our own weakness. Secondly, when we say, if the Lord wills, we're also acknowledging God's sovereignty, right? That He alone has the power to actually bring His will and plan about. And we know He will do that. But we're also demonstrating that we're submitting ourselves to God as we acknowledge that His will and plan is far greater than our will and plan. And here we have the example of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself when He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that He has betrayed before uh, the night before His death. 
And he prayed, Lord, let this cup pass. Father, let this cup pass from me. But then he submitted his will to God's will. Not my will, but your will be done. He basically was saying, God willing. And then finally, by saying if the Lord wills, we acknowledge that God is first and foremost in our lives. And God is first and foremost in our lives, not just by, by rank of order, that is, you know, serving God is at the top of our to-do list, and then we check that off and we can move on to something else. No. When we talk about God being first and foremost in our lives, we are acknowledging that He is over and above and actually influences every area of our lives. So that godliness... Christ-likeness and the pursuit of God's glory would permeate every area of our lives. Not just in religious duties, but in our work, in our relationships, in our recreations, in our finances, and even in the plans that we make for the future. All these would be submitted to the Lord and geared toward His glory and not our own. That's what we are saying when we say, if the Lord wills. But there are two important things to keep in mind as we think about the future and making plans. The first is that we ought to make plans. Right? We, we shouldn't misunderstand what James is saying here. He isn't saying that we should avoid making any plans. Now remember, he's challenging those who live lives of pride and practical atheism. No, it's, it's wise and good and prudent to make plans. Whether they be short-term plans or long-term goals, we should make plans. But, here's the key, and here's the, the lesson that James is, is setting forth. These plans are to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Right, so we make plans, and we're quick to seek the Lord's blessing on those plans... But, where we fail, is we often fail to seek His will when we're actually making those plans. Right? We, we, we tend to think about it after. We make the plans, hey, okay, Lord, bless these plans. But if we do the, that the, according to the Lord's will, well then as we're actually making the plans, we think about, okay, Lord, what is your will in this situation? And help me to make these plans according to your will. See, that's the difference. But we also need to be cautious. So we, we should make plans. But those plans need to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. But we should also be cautioned about simply saying, if the Lord wills. I mean, you could have a conversation and say that in every single conversation, even several times in a conversation. As if there was some kind of magical spell that's going to guarantee that our plans are going to work out. No, you see, there's no guarantee. Because when we entrust our plans to the Lord and submit them, even seeking to conform them to His will, well, more often than not, this means that our plans are going to change. And we, you probably have experienced this in your life. You make plans, and you say, Look, Lord willing... And then the Lord ends up changing things around and doing, taking in a totally different direction that you had never even conceived of. So there's no guarantee 
that when we make our plans and say, if the Lord wills, that those plans are going to come about. No, God's plan will come about. And through that process, hopefully, He'll teach us, this is my plan, and help us to see it and understand it. And again, when this happens, or when those changes are made to our plans, or when the unexpected happens in the midst of carrying out our plans, we don't need to worry or panic. Well, we don't need to fall into anxiety. Why? Because we acknowledge that God is in control. So we make our plans, our plans change, we don't, we don't panic, we don't freak out. We acknowledge God's in control, God is leading, we've submitted these plans to His will, His plan, His purpose. We know that He's working out all things for our good and His glory. We thought we had a good plan, God has a better plan. And He's working that out. Even if it means that our plans, our original plans, totally get scrapped. God always has a better plan. But the second thing that we need to keep in mind is that by just adding the phrase, if the Lord wills, to our plans, see, that's not the point. And it's true that in saying the words, if the Lord wills, we'll be reminded of the truths that we just considered. In fact, many throughout church history have used the abbreviation uh, DV, which stands for the Latin phrase, Deo Volante, which means God willing. And I use that often, and you know, you might have seen it in, in emails or communications from me, you know, DV, or God willing. And we can say the phrase, but the thing is, we can say the phrase as long as we don't lose sight of what it means. Of what it means in our hearts. It's not just something we're tacking on, but it's got to mean something in our own hearts. You see, because it can too easily become cliché. And even in the New Testament, though Paul was mindful of this truth, well, he didn't always say it explicitly as we noted before, but you see the difference is he lived it. He lived it out in his life. And so it isn't just the words, but more importantly, it's the lifestyle that's intended to be lived when one confesses these words, if the Lord wills. It implies a lifestyle that's committed to seeking the Lord's will, doing the Lord's will, and living the Lord's will for His glory and not our own. You see, it comes back to a heart issue. It's not just we're tacking these words on. We think about them, but we believe it in our heart as well. Now those to whom James is writing... Again, they ought to be doing this, even as we ought to be doing this. They ought to be submitting not only their plans, but their lives to the Lord. But they weren't. And James declares with disapproval in verse 16, But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. See, what they were doing was evil and sinful. They were caught up in the wisdom of the world with its bitter envy and pride. And by their actions. Even in the simple task of making business plans, they were living as though God wasn't there. As though He didn't matter and had no claim on their lives. And again, the world lives this way all the time. But these were believers in Christ. These were ones who claimed to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Certainly they acknowledged this when they gathered together, but come Monday morning when it was time to make plans for work or school or their future, no thought was given to God. 
It was as if God was placed on the back burner so that they could pursue their own desires as they arrogantly boasted of power and control that they really didn't have. And so it was foolish. It was foolish and it was sinful. Brothers and sisters, let's be challenged to consider these things. Let's be mindful, even in the simple mundane task of of making our plans. Let us be reminded of our need to humble ourselves before the Lord. To submit ourselves, all of ourselves, every area of our lives to God, conforming our will to His most holy and perfect will. But this we can't do without the sustaining grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that He abundantly supplies to us each and every day that we call upon His name in faith. You see, only by living in this greater grace that the Lord gives will we be able to cast off our pride and arrogance even our worry and our anxiety, we can cast those things off as we humble ourselves before the Lord, as we acknowledge His sovereign power, and as we trust Him that His will is the good and perfect will, and His plan is the good and perfect plan, and it will be accomplished for our good and for His glory alone. Let's pray. Well, gracious God in heaven, we do rejoice and give thanks to you for your word and for this important reminder about just, again, a, a common everyday thing. We all make plans every day. And yet, how are we giving thought to submitting those plans to your will so that they might lead for your glory? and your honor, and your purpose, and not our own selfish desires, or any foolish thinking that we have control over all things. Father, it's truly a heart issue that our whole lives are to be submitted to you. Every area of our life. And we acknowledge that we fail miserably at this. In which we're praising you and thanking you for the abounding grace and mercy that you pour out upon us and that you renew for us each and every day. Because without that, O Lord, we would be lost and crushed. And so we praise you and thank you for your blessing. We pray that as we seek to live lives submitted to your will, seeking to do your purpose in all things, seeking to glorify you and enjoy you in everything, in every area of our lives, that truly Your name would be lifted up and glorified, that we, through that, would be a faithful witness to those around us as they see that we live our lives very different from the way other people live, that they would ask us for the reason of the hope that is in us and that we would be ready with Your Word to speak the truth to them and the Gospel, that they too might come and join us in this chorus of praise and thanksgiving for all that You have done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we pray here that if any are puffed with pride, if any are filled with anxiety or worry, that they would truly submit themselves to You and trust You and trust Your sovereign power to work out Your plan for our good and Your glory. Father, we pray that Your Spirit would truly impress these truths upon each of our hearts, drawing us all closer to Yourself, to the praise of Your glorious name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. 
Amen.